Thank you for listening to our Emmanuel Baptist Church podcast sermon series by Pastor Sean Cole. Emmanuel exists to display God's glory, declare God's gospel, and to disciple for God's great commission. If you have any questions about this message or would like more information about our church, you can visit our website at www.ebc-online.org. Now here's Pastor Sean. I do want to invite you to open your Bibles to Luke chapter 24. Luke chapter 24. Sorry, I got your attention there. I got your attention. So when I was a a young youth pastor many years ago, I remember the first time that I had to preach my first sermon in front of my pastor, in front of my mentor, the the man that had, had trained me in the faith. And there was a lot of nerves it's real nervous when you're a young youth pastor and you're, you're preaching in front of your mentor. And it reminds me of a story that Charles Spurgeon tells about a young preacher. This, Spurgeon tells a story in one of his sermons about this young preacher that was really, he was impressed with himself. He was impressed with his oratorical skills. He was impressed in how well he could craft a sermon and tell stories and his mentor was in the worship service, and so after the sermon that this young man thought he did a great job, he went up to his mentor and said, well, how, how was my sermon? All excited. And the mentor said, well, it was a pretty bad sermon. It was pretty poor. It wasn't very good. And the young man said, now, wait a minute. What, what do you mean? I spent a lot of time studying the text. I spent a lot a long hours. I, I felt like I preached my heart out. And the old man said, yeah, that's what you think. But there's one problem in your sermon. You said nothing about Jesus. And then he continued, and this is kind of some famous words from Spurgeon, so I'm going to read it word for word. He said, Don't you know, young man, that from every town and every village and every little hamlet in England, wherever it may be, there's a road to London? The young man said, Yes. Ah, said the old mentor. And so from every text in Scripture, there's a road to the metropolis of the Scriptures. That is Christ. And my dear brother, your business is when you get to a text to say, now what's the road to Christ? And then preach a sermon running along the road toward the great metropolis Christ. And he said, I've never found yet a text that had not got a road to Christ in it. And if I ever do find one that does not have a road to Christ in it, I will make one. I will go over hedge and ditch, but I would get to my master. For the sermon cannot do any good unless there is a saver of Christ in it. You preach, but you never said anything about Jesus. Now, let me ask you a question. Does every single verse in the Bible explicitly mention Jesus? Now, I would emphatically say no, but I would just as forcefully say that the entire Old Testament is about Jesus. Now, the Old Testament is sometimes weird to us. It's foreign to us. You open up the Bible and you got a bunch of weird names. So-and-so begat so-and-so. And And you start your Bible reading plan and then you get to the book of Leviticus and you're like, I don't understand all these strange laws. I know one of our growth groups is doing Leviticus. You have all these weird names, all these weird stories, and and, and it's just kind of hard to wrap our minds around. Now, when you open your Bible, you probably naturally go to like the New Testament. I'm more familiar with the New Testament. But if you do open your Bible to the Old Testament, you probably go to the Psalms because it's more familiar. You're not going to go to Habakkuk as your daily Bible reading. But one of the dangers 
in reading the Old Testament is that you can read it like Aesop's fables. You can see your Old Testament as a bunch of disconnected stories that are about morality. So, for example, you can come to where Abraham lied about Sarah, and you can come away from that with the moral of the story is don't lie. Or you can come to when Noah got drunk, and the moral of the story is don't get drunk like Noah. Or you can come to the story where David killed Goliath, and the moral of the story is kill the Goliaths in your life. And then you can come to the story with Samson and Delilah, and the moral of the story is don't let a woman cut your hair because you may get seduced by her. This leads to what we call moralism. Moralism is how do I imitate these Old Testament characters? What should I do? What should I not do? And you really read your Old Testament primarily about you. How do I live a better life? How do I have the morals? How do I emulate these Old Testament characters? And so the Old Testament becomes a bunch of morality tales that put you at the center of how you are to live a better and more fulfilled life. And you can leave Jesus totally out of the equation of the Old Testament. It's tragic because many people read their Old Testament and don't see Jesus at all. And John Calvin said this, he said, We ought to read the scriptures with the express design of finding Christ in them. Whoever turns from this aim will never gain the full knowledge of the truth. So let me ask you a question. When you read your Old Testament, not the New Testament, but when you read your Old Testament, and by the way, the Old Testament's two-thirds of your Bible, okay? There's a big chunk of your Bible is the Old Testament. When you read the Old Testament, do you read it looking to find Jesus? Last week, we celebrated Easter in January, focusing on the resurrection when Jesus burst forth from the tomb early on Sunday morning. And in our text this morning, it's still Sunday, but it's later on in the afternoon. And Luke is the only gospel writer to record these two disciples on the road to Emmaus. And this is a fascinating passage of Scripture that's going to open to us the glories of Christ in the Old Testament. So let's read this together. And by the way, we're going to spend the next two weeks on this. I've got one point here this morning, and next week we're going to read it again, but there's a different aspect I'm going to discuss. So Luke 24, starting in verse 13. That very day, two of them were going to a village named Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. And they were talking with each other about all these things that had happened. And while they were talking and discussing together, Jesus himself drew near and went with them. But their eyes were kept from recognizing him. And he said to them, What's this conversation that you're holding with each other as you walk? And they stood still looking sad. And one of them named Cleopas answered him, Are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened there in these days? And he said to them, What things? And they said to him, Concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a man who was a prophet, mighty in deed and word before God and all the people. And how our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Yes, and besides all this, it's now the third day since these things have happened. Moreover, some women of our company amazed us. They were at the tomb early in the morning, and when they did not find his body, they came back saying that they had even seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the woman had said. But him they did not see. 
And he said to them, O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. So as they drew near to the village which they were going, he acted as if he was going farther, but they urged him strongly, saying, Stay with us, for it is towards evening, and the day is now far spent. So he went in to stay with them. When he was at the table with them, he took bread and blessed it and broke it and gave it to them, and their eyes were opened, and they recognized him. And he vanished from their sight. And they said to each other, Did not our hearts burn within us? while he talked to us on the road, while he opened to us the scriptures. It's Sunday afternoon. It's still the Lord's Day. And these two disciples, one named Cleopas, and we don't know the name of the other one. Could be his wife. It could be another person. We really don't know who these people are, but they're traveling from Jerusalem to Emmaus. And the Bible here in verse 15 says they were discussing. And you look at the original language, it's a lively discussion. They're having a lively debate. They're they're animated, talking about these things. And Jesus himself draws near. And God, for whatever reason, sovereignly closes their eyes to where they don't recognize Jesus. Now, Jesus could have chided them, but Jesus just comes alongside and starts walking with them and and asks the question, he said, what are you guys talking about? Now, he could have said, hey, hey, it's, it's me, it's Jesus. I'm Jesus. I rose from the dead. It's me. Here's the nails on my hands and feet. But Jesus doesn't do that. He comes up and says, well, hey, what are you guys talking about? You're having a lively conversation here. What are you guys talking about? And, and it's kind of funny because what does Cleopas do? Have you been living under a, in a cave the past few days? Do you not know what's going on? There's this Jesus guy, and we know he's a great prophet, and he was delivered up to be crucified, and and these ladies went to this tomb and saw that the tomb was empty, and they had this vision of angels, and, and you don't know what's going on? Here's the irony. Who knew the minute details of everything that was going on? Jesus knew what was going on, but they're like, they don't know it's Jesus. They're like, do you not know what's going on here? And Jesus is just walking along like, I know everything that's going on. Exactly. And then, what does Jesus say to them? Oh, foolish ones. Oh, foolish ones. Now, notice one thing that Cleopas leaves out of his gospel presentation. He's got the death. He's got the empty tomb. But what, what, is he, what has he said? He's not actually talked about the resurrection. He still doesn't quite know what's going on. We went to the empty tomb, but we don't know if Jesus is alive or what. And then Jesus Verse 26, what does he say? Or verse 25, O foolish ones. Now, that's a gentle rebuke by Jesus. He's basically saying, are you guys so clueless? Are you so clueless? You're slow of heart. Your heart's slow to believe. To believe what? Notice where Jesus takes them. He takes them to the gospel He says, 
in verse 26, was it not necessary? In other words, this is prophetic. Was it not necessary? It's God's sovereign timetable. These things had to happen. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer, that's the cross, and then enter into his glory? That's the resurrection and eventually going to be the ascension back up into heaven. Don't you guys know that Jesus had to die and rise again? Now, what Jesus does in verse 27, he does two amazing things that you would not expect. Two tremendous truths we see in verse 27. Here's the first truth we see in verse 27. Jesus proclaimed and explained the written scriptures. Now, I find this fascinating because what could have Jesus done? He could have said, guys, let's go back to the empty tomb and I want to show you with your own eyes that it's empty. Jesus could have begun teaching a parable. Jesus could have given a personal testimony. But what does Jesus do? He points them not to the empty tomb, but he points them back to the Old Testament. What does he say to them? Verse 27, beginning with Moses... And all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Jesus says, let's go back to the Bible. We're not going to go back to the empty tomb. I'm not going to give you some parables, but we're going to go back to Moses, the first five books of the Bible, all the prophets, and then later on he talks about the Psalms, the entirety of the Old Testament. I like what one commentator said. One commentator said this, an older commentator. He said, I should have imagined that the risen Lord would not only rely on the Bible here. Let me, let me read that. I should have imagined that the risen Lord would not rely on the Bible here. But no, he holds on to it with all affection. He came up from the grave and went first to the Holy Bible. Jesus starts with the Scriptures. And that's where we should start and end as well. And, and notice what Jesus does. Look at the words that Luke uses. He interpreted to them. He interpreted. He thoroughly explained. He clarified. He exposited. He exegeted and taught it. Look at verse 32. He says, Did not our hearts burn within us while He talked to us on the road, while He opened? To us, the scriptures. Two Greek words there. He interpreted the scriptures. He opened up the scriptures. Jesus here is doing none other than expository teaching. He's taking the Old Testament and he's thoroughly explaining it, proclaiming it, digging up its treasures. He's doing expository teaching. That's what these words mean. He's opening up the scriptures. He's interpreting the scriptures. And so um, that's what my job is as your pastor, by the way. I'm to follow Jesus' example here and to explain and proclaim the text. And so instead of pointing to the empty tomb, which you'd think Jesus would do, you'd think of anything Jesus would say, hey, look at me. Here's my personal testimony. I'm alive. Now, I'm not discounting that, but right here, Jesus says, let's go back and read the Bible. What does the Bible say about this? So that's the first thing Jesus does. He points not to the empty tomb, but he points them back to the scriptures. Beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them. He opened up the scriptures. And here's the second truth. The entire Old Testament is about 
Jesus. Notice what he says there in verse 27. He, beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. In other words, the entire Old Testament, because at this time the New Testament hasn't been written yet, has it? So when it talks about the written scriptures here, it's talking about the Old Testament. Jesus takes them back to the Old Testament and says, it's all about me. Now in in John's gospel, Jesus rebukes the Pharisees for their failure to see that the Old Testament's about Jesus. And so Jesus makes a profound statement that parallels what we see here in Luke in John chapter 5, verses 39 through 40. He says, you search the scriptures. Again, that's the Old Testament. You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. It is they, the Old Testament scriptures, that bear witness about me. Yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. So what does Jesus do? Jesus goes back to Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, all the way to Malachi. And he explains to them thoroughly, in detail, that all of the Old Testament's about him. Now, here's what kills me, and kills every preacher. We don't have the sermon. Would that we'd have that sermon of what Jesus taught. It just says he explained it. He exposited it. He opened it up. We don't know exactly what Jesus said, but we do know that it says, beginning with Moses and all the prophets, Jesus systematically went through and said, here's how everything in the Old Testament points to me. So what we're going to do this morning is this. We're going to take a little mini tour through the Old Testament, starting where Jesus said to start, starting with Moses. That's Genesis. And then through the prophets. Now, we're not going to go through the entire Old Testament this morning. We'd be here all morning. But what I want us to do is I want us to see the glory of Christ in the Old Testament from the law of Moses, specifically Genesis and Exodus, and then the prophets, which would be Isaiah through Malachi. And we're specifically going to look at uh, Isaiah. Now, what I have provided for you, if after the service you go out and get the manuscript, I've got an appendix. The last page of my sermon manuscript is an appendix, and I've got like almost every Old Testament passage where Jesus shows up so that you can, I can't preach all of those this Sunday, but you can go look at that. So let's first of all look at the law of Moses. That's Genesis through Deuteronomy. Genesis through Deuteronomy. The first thing that we see in Genesis chapter 3, the third chapter of the Bible, is that Jesus is the promised deliverer. Jesus is the promised deliverer. Now, we know what happened with Adam and Eve. Adam and Eve are in the garden. They disobey God's direct command not to eat of the tree of knowledge of good and evil. They eat from it, and what happens? Their eyes are open. They're ashamed. They're naked. Paul tells us in Romans chapter 5, verse 12, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sin. That one man that brought sin into the world is Adam. So they commit cosmic treason against a holy God and bring sin and death into the world on the third page of the Scripture. And God pronounces a curse to Satan. The serpent. And what does God say to the serpent? In Genesis 3.15, probably the most important verse in Genesis. Genesis 3.15, this is God's pronouncement. This is God speaking. I will put enmity, he's talking to the serpent, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Now what does this mean? 
This is the first announcement of the gospel in the entire Bible. It's on page 3. This is an announcement that there will be a deliverer born of a woman who's going to crush the head of Satan. There's going to be a seed or lineage coming from a woman. This is an announcement of a, of a Messiah. That God is going to send a man, a Messiah, to come reverse the curse in the garden and crush Satan. Now, this is the first announcement of it. It unfolds throughout the whole Old Testament eventually to Jesus. But what does God do immediately when Adam and Eve sin? This is amazing to me. God could have said, I'm done with the human race. I'm kicking you guys out. We're, we're not going to start over. We're done here. But what does God do? You don't catch this detail unless you read it very carefully in Genesis 3.21. Just a few verses after God pronounces this curse and makes this announcement. The Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skin and clothed them. Let me ask you a question. Where did God get the garments of skin? What did God have to do? God killed an animal. Then took that animal's skin and covered the nakedness of Adam and Eve. Now what's that a picture of? God son being killed as a sacrifice in his righteousness covering our shame so that we could be accepted by God so from the very first three chapters of the Bible you see pictures of Jesus coming as the deliverer you automatically see a substitutionary atonement this promise of this coming deliverer now fast forward to the story of Abraham you know Abraham was a hundred years old and God said you're gonna have a son Sarah's 90. Let me just ask you a question. Any 90-year-old here want to bear children? So Sarah does. She bears a child, and they call the child Isaac. What does Isaac mean? Laughter. This is hilarious. I can't believe a 90-year-old woman's going to have. So Isaac is born, and Isaac is the son of the promise. And if you read Genesis, Isaac is called the one and only son of Abraham. And what does God say to Abraham in Genesis chapter 22? Abraham, I want you to take Isaac and I want you to climb up Mount Moriah and I want you to sacrifice him up there. So early that morning, Abraham and Isaac head out to Mount Moriah. Isaac gets wood on his back, walks up a mountain with wood on his back. He's bound there on the altar. Abraham's about ready to slit his throat, and an angel comes and says, I've seen what you've, that you have faith. Don't, don't sacrifice the son. Here's what we read. Je Jesus is the one and only sacrificial son. You, you see this in Genesis 22, 11 through 14. The angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. He said, here I am. He said, do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to, to him. For now I know that you fear God, seeing you've not withheld your son, your only son, from me. And Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, behind him was a ram caught in a thicket by his horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called the name of that place the Lord will provide. And as it is said to this day, on the mount of the Lord, it shall be provided. The key word in that passage is the word instead. The ram was sacrificed instead of the one and only son. It's a picture of a substitute, of someone dying in the place of somebody else. So in that moment, Isaac, the one and only son, was spared death instead because a ram 
was offered in its place. Now, Jesus on the cross, did God spare him? No, Jesus was offered up instead of us. Romans 8.32, He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Do you see the imagery here? Isaac, the one and only son, carrying wood up his back to the top of a mountain, almost being killed, but then God spares him. Jesus, the one and only son of God, walking up Mount Calvary with cross on his back, and instead of not being spared or, or being spared on that cross, God sacrifices his one and only son in our place. It's pictured in Genesis 22. Let's think about the lineage of Jesus for a moment. What tribe did Jesus come from? Judah. Jesus is the kingly lion of Judah. Genesis 49, 9-10, Judah is a lion's club. Lion's club, lion's cub. <laughs> the lion's club. Some of you are members of that, but um, that's not what we're talking about here. Judah is a lion's cub. From the prey, my son, you have gone up. He stooped down, he crouched as a lion and as a lioness. Who dares rouse him? The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet until tribute comes to him, and to him shall be the obedience of the people. This is a prophecy of of what's going to come from the tribe of Judah. A lion, royal, kingly, and a scepter. Jesus is the lion of the tribe of Judah, and it's right here in Genesis chapter 49. He's going to come from the lineage of Judah, and what king comes from Judah? David. King David's from the lineage of Judah, and we know that Jesus is the son of David, and God promises to build a kingly dynasty through David that would last forever. 2 Samuel 7, 16, And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. The lion of the tribe of Judah would come from David as the king forever. Now, what did Gabriel announce when Jesus was about to be born? Luke 1, 32-33. He will be great, and he'll be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and his kingdom there will be no end. That's just Genesis. Promised deliverer in chapter 3. The sacrificial son, Genesis 22. The lion of the tribe of, Ju- of Judah, Genesis 49. That's just Genesis. I could spend a month of Sundays showing you all through Genesis, Jesus. But let's go to Exodus for a moment. Exodus was also written by Moses. Jesus says, beginning with Moses. So Exodus, what's the big event in Exodus? This is what the main name Exodus means. Exodus means to exit. So God saved Israel out of bondage in Egypt. Israelites were in bondage in Egypt. How did God save them? Through the Passover lamb. What were the instructions for the Passover lamb? So Jesus is the Passover lamb. They were to find a pure, spotless lamb, sacrifice that lamb, put the blood of that lamb on the lintels and doorposts of their home so that when the angel of death passed over, they, their firstborn would not be destroyed. And so you find this in Exodus 12, 21 through 23. Moses called all the elders of Israel and said to them, Go and select lambs for yourself according to your clans and kill the Passover lamb. Take a bunch of hyssop and dip it in the blood that's in the basin and touch the lintel and the two doorposts with the blood that's in the basin. None of you shall go out of the door of his house until morning, for the Lord will pass through to strike the Egyptians. And when he sees the blood, 
On the lintel and on the two doorposts, the Lord will pass over the door and will not allow the destroyer to enter your houses to strike you. The Passover lamb. Now, what does the New Testament tell us about Jesus? This is how we opened up the worship service this morning. John 1, 29. This is John the Baptist. The next day he saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Jesus is pictured in the Passover ceremony. 1 Corinthians 5, 7. For Christ our Passover Lamb has been sacrificed. 1 Peter 1, 18-19, knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, I could show you all day where Jesus shows up in the first five books of the Bible. But Jesus also tells these two men or two disciples we don't know if it's man or woman verse 27 beginning with Moses and all the prophets so he used the prophets which would be Isaiah through Malachi now we don't have time to go through all the prophets but let's just look at Isaiah very famous passage of scripture written 700 years before Jesus died on the cross Isaiah 53 4 through 7 you know this surely he's borne our griefs carried our sorrows Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that's led to the slaughter and like a sheep that before it shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. Do you see the language there? Our sins. He was sacrificed for our shame, our grief, our iniquity. God caused all of our iniquity to be laid upon Jesus. He took our shame. He took our sin. He never once sinned because he was the perfect Lamb of God. Now this speaks about crucifixion some 700 years before crucifixion, but not only just the crucifixion, but just the spiritual anguish that Jesus experienced when he died on the cross. The justice of God, the wrath of God. So Jesus does something very spectacular here with these two disciples. He explained and opened the scriptures to these two on the road to Emmaus. Surprisingly, he doesn't take him to the empty tomb, but he takes him to the scriptures and says, listen, I'm going to take you on this tour of the Old Testament and show you how from Genesis to Malachi, it's all about me. I'm all over the place. And you should know that the Old Testament points to Jesus. Now, I want to I want to ask you a question. What was their condition before Jesus taught them on the road to Emmaus? You, you guys tell me. Look at your Bibles. Look at verse 25. What did Jesus say? Oh, foolish ones, slow of heart to believe. They were slow of heart to believe. Slow of heart. something that just popped up on my 
There we go. Slow of heart. What was their response after Jesus taught them? Look down at verse 32. Did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road, while he opened up to us the scriptures? This word burn doesn't really show up in much other places in the Bible. It's just their hearts were aflamed. Their hearts were kindled. They were excited. They were thrilled. They had never been treated to such a rare Old Testament lesson as this, and they would never forget it. And again, it kills me that I don't know what Jesus taught here. It just says that he opened up the scriptures. But so much so that before they had foolish hearts, after their hearts burned with joy and excitement and thrill. So what should this produce within us? Our heart should burn within us. I'm hearing music. That wasn't planned, but... um, Let me ask you a question. Is your heart slow to believe? Or does your heart burn within you? Do you have a slow, hard heart toward the things of Christ? Or do you have a soft, burning heart toward the things of Christ? Do you want to see Jesus more gloriously? Do you want to see Him more gloriously? Do you want to know Jesus more fully? Do you want to love Jesus more intently? I hope you do. Do you want to see him? Do you want to know him? Do you want to love him more and more? If you say yes, I've got the answer for you. How do you do that? Open your Bible. Open your Bible and saturate your heart and your mind with the Scriptures. And as you open up these scriptures and you read and you dig into them, you will find Jesus all over the place, especially in your Old Testament if you look hard enough. So what do you need to do to have a burning heart? Pray for Jesus to open your eyes. Pray for Jesus to inflame your heart. Pray for him to increase your love. Saturate yourself in the scriptures. And as you saturate yourself in the scriptures, your love for Jesus will increase, your knowledge for Jesus will increase, and your obedience to Jesus will increase. Your heart will burn within you. And it's very interesting. We've seen all these images in the Old Testament of what? A sacrificial lamb that was slaughtered. What do we see in the picture of the Old Testament? And what do we see in the Lord's Supper? The Lord's Supper is a visual picture on this side of the sacrifice of the pure, spotless Lamb of God. So as we celebrate the Lord's Supper this morning, together, thinking about Jesus as our sacrifice, can I just ask a simple question? Can we celebrate the Lord's Supper this morning with burning hearts? Can our hearts burn within us that we get to celebrate the supper together 
and celebrate Jesus. I pray that as we celebrate the Lord's Supper this morning, your hearts are burning within you with a passion, with an excitement, with a joy because of all that Jesus has done for you in his cross and in his resurrection. So let's go to the Lord this morning and ask that our eyes be open, ask that our hearts burn, ask that he prepares us to take the Lord's Supper together this morning. Would you spend just a few moments in prayer this morning? As we do come before you this morning and we ask that you would open our eyes to your glory, that you would inflame our hearts, that you would help us to be excited about your word. We want to saturate ourselves in the scripture so much that we know you more deeply, we love you more fervently, and we obey you more faithfully. And Lord, as we celebrate your supper this morning, help, help us to do it with joy, help us to do it with thankfulness, help us to do it with gratitude, because the, you were the Lamb of God that was slain for us. And we ask this in your name, Jesus. Amen.